Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 45. Jesus prays and heals a leper. Let us begin with verse 35. What do we read there? Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. When we just think about that verse, it is mind-blowing, especially when we think about who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? He is God, and he is praying. And you might be thinking, why does God need to pray? Why on earth is Jesus praying? Well, Jesus was, and Jesus is God, but he's God, the eternal son. God is a family of three persons, isn't he? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And God, the eternal son, Jesus, he's just speaking to his father. He's just speaking to the Most High God. He's just communicating with God the Father. It was just perfectly natural, wasn't it, for Jesus to pray. For all eternity, Jesus had been speaking to his Father. Why would he stop when he became a human being for those 33 years? It was the most natural thing in the world for Jesus to do. Speak to his Father in prayer. So Jesus always has been God... And he always will be God. But for 33 years, Jesus became 100% man. He was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. And Jesus lived his human life in prayer. So just because Jesus was God, it didn't mean that he didn't need to pray. Jesus was able to keep his sort of human nature perfect Because he prayed, Jesus is to pray, lead me not into temptation, deliver me from that evil one. Jesus was tempted in a very real way, wasn't he? He had to pray for strength in these temptations. Jesus prayed. That's the first thing we learn about Jesus in this passage. He was the praying God-man. And Jesus is still praying today, isn't he? Where is Jesus' body right now? Jesus' body was nailed to a cross for our sins. Jesus' body was buried. On the third day, his body was risen from the dead. And he lived a resurrection life on this earth for 40 days. And then on the 40th day, his resurrected body ascended up to heaven and that is where Jesus' resurrected body is right now in heaven seated at the right hand of the Father and Jesus is praying now Jesus is praying now he prayed during his 33 years on this earth way back in eternity he was always communicating with the Father and right now he's making intercession for us that's what we read in Hebrews chapter 7 Verse 25, isn't it? Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. So Jesus is our God-man in heaven praying for us right now. 
Let me share with you this very powerful quote by the great preacher, Robert Murray McShane. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Can you almost imagine that? If Jesus was physically present in the room next door, right now, praying, and you could hear him saying your name, praying to the Father. It's like, we, we wouldn't be able to contain it, would we? That Jesus, God the Eternal Son, is praying for us by name. It'd be like, it's just too much to bear. Well, he is doing it, though, isn't he? Jesus is praying for us. He's making intercession for us right now. That's the first thing we learn. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the praying God-man. Now, if the Son of God had to spend his human life in prayer, how much more should we? That's such a challenge, isn't it? If Jesus prayed, surely we should pray, shouldn't we? Listen to this quote by the great preacher J.C. Ryle. What shall we say to those who never pray at all? In the face of such a passage as this, there are many such, it may be feared, in the list of baptised people who may rise up in the morning without prayer and without prayer lie down at night. Many who never speak one word to God. Are they Christians? It is impossible to say so. A praying master like Jesus can have no prayerless servants. The spirit of adoption will always make a man call upon God. To be prayerless is to be Christless, godless, and in the high road to destruction. So prayer is the pulse of Christianity, isn't it? If the emergency services went to a scene of an accident, and if someone was unconscious, what's the first thing they do? To check if the person was still alive. They check the pulse, isn't it? How can you check if someone is alive spiritually, if someone has the life of Christ in them? What is the pulse of a Christian? Are they a praying person? Are they a praying person? But some people don't pray at all. Don't pray at all. And if someone isn't praying at all, if they've never called out on Jesus, then they can't be Christian. But I think a more common case is that people don't pray much. I maybe suspect that everyone here this morning have prayed. If you call yourself a Christian, then you have prayed. But I think the case with most Christians today, in Britain particularly, is that we maybe don't pray much. We don't pray as much as we should. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says here. What shall we say to those who pray, yet give but little time to their prayers? 
we are obliged to say that they show at present very little of the mind of Christ. Asking little, they must expect to have little. Seeking little, they cannot be surprised if they possess little. It will always be found that when prayers are few, grace, strength, peace and hope are small. Let me just repeat that last sentence again. It will always be found that when prayers are few, grace, strength, peace and hope are small. So whenever I feel weak as a Christian, whenever I haven't got any peace as a Christian, whenever I feel hopeless as a Christian, it's because I'm not praying. I know what the problem is here. I've stopped praying. We are strengthened when we call on the name of Jesus, when we cry out to him for help. So if someone feels weak or a Christian, what should they do? They should pray and pray honestly. God, I feel weak. I feel cold. Pray honestly like the psalmist and look to Jesus. I love uh, the verse of the great hymn, I hear the Saviour say, Listen to these words from the great hymn. I hear the Saviour say, Thy strength indeed is small. So Jesus is saying, I can see your strength is small. This is what you should do. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. So when we're feeling weak as a Christian, what should we do? We should find our all in all in Jesus. Look to Jesus And watch and pray. Which kind of answers the question, what is involved in following Jesus? Well, to be a follower of Jesus involves prayer. A true follower of Christ will pray. Now, our prayers don't save us, do they? But our prayers is evidence that we have been saved. Our prayers don't save us, but it's evidence that we have been saved saved so Jesus is the praying God man and his followers are praying people what we read in verses 36 to 39 of Mark 1 then Simon and his companions went to look for him and when they found him they exclaimed everyone's looking for you Jesus replied let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also that is why I have come So he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. That is such a clear answer to the question, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? According to verses 36 to 39. He came to preach. Jesus was a preacher. And when you read through the Gospels, Jesus is constantly preaching and teaching. So why was preaching so important to Jesus? Why would preaching be so important to Jesus? Well, the answer is found in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 17. This is why preaching is so important. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that a wonderful promise? But how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? 
And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. Why is preaching important? It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of heaven and hell, isn't it? How do people come to faith? By hearing the Bible being preached and taught, isn't it? Faith comes from hearing. Hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. It's like it says in verse 14, isn't it? How can they believe in the one they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? So Jesus took preaching very seriously because it's a matter of life and death, heaven and hell. Eternity is at stake. That's why he preached. Now, preaching isn't very popular, is it, these days? I don't know how many different little groups or meetings I've been to. And people have literally sort of said these words. We need to think of more imaginative ways of reaching people with the gospel. That just doesn't work today. Someone standing at the front with a Bible open and preaching. We need to think of more imaginative ways. We need to use the arts. We need to have singing items. We need to have dramas. We need to have mimes. Or we need to have sort of murals, sort of paintings. And people can just come and have a look at it. Maybe then they'll get saved. Is that what the Bible says? No, faith comes from hearing and hearing the Bible being preached. During Jesus' earthly ministry, how many people did he sing into the kingdom? Is an example of Jesus just singing to someone and then they come to faith? Is an example of Jesus doing a drama or doing a mime or doing a painting? No, he preached to people, didn't he? Jesus came to preach the good news. What do we read then in verse 40 of Mark chapter 1? A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you were willing, you can make me clean. Now, I started doing a bit of reading on leprosy. Leprosy still sort of exists today and it's called Hansen's disease maybe many of you know more about me than about leprosy Uh, apparently leprosy begins with tiredness and joint pain and these sort of scaly spots that sort of filled with pus and apparently the face then takes on the appearance of a lion it affects your speech The body begins to decompose and you give off a terrible stench. And apparently the life expectancy is nine years. And I started reading some weird and wonderful things about leprosy. And apparently in India today, some doctors prescribe lepers with cats. So we've had some interesting moments with doctors and we're prescribing you with all sorts of different things could you imagine if your doctor prescribed you with a cat you know we think we've got it bad today it's not that bad if you're living in india maybe your doctor would give you a cat 
Why would he give you a cat? To keep the rats away. Because if you were a leper, you'd wake up in the morning and your ear would be missing, or your nose would be missing, or your fingers or your toes, because a rat would have come and nibbled it off. So people would keep cats in India. So he's looking at all these weird and wonderful things about leprosy. But I really should have checked the footnote, shouldn't I? What does the footnote say? Can you see it there? Mark chapter 1, verse 40. It's got the footnote H. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. The Greek word, traditionally translated leprosy, was used for various diseases affecting the skin. So I was thinking, he probably hasn't even got leprosy. (laughs) So I'm doing all this research on leprosy when this guy probably hasn't got leprosy. It was just a disease that affected the skin. It could have been a variety of skin diseases. It's just that we traditionally translate it as leprosy. And if we flick to Leviticus chapter 13, a passage that tells us a lot about skin disease. And the footnote A then in Leviticus chapter 13 says this. Leviticus chapter 13 verse 2, the Hebrew word for defiling skin disease, traditionally translated leprosy, was used for various diseases affecting the skin. Here and throughout verses 3 to 46. So then in Mark chapter 1 verse 40, I suppose the translation should be a man with a disease affecting the skin. We don't actually know if it was Hansen's disease or leprosy. A man with a disease affecting the skin came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And then if we read Leviticus 13, This is 45 to 46. This is what we read. Leviticus 13, 45 to 46. Anyone with a defiling disease, or anyone with leprosy, or anyone with a defiling disease, must wear torn clothes. Let their hair be unkept. Cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. I don't know about you, but that's such an emotional verse, isn't it? Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 to 46. Could you imagine having one of those defiling skin diseases? Could you imagine being like that? They have to wear torn clothes... Your hair will be unkept. You'll have to cover the lower part of your face. And you have to cry out, unclean, unclean. Everyone, don't come near me. I'm infectious. I'm unclean. And you live alone. And you live outside the camp. Such a sad picture, isn't it? But I find that this disease is a perfect illustration of sin, isn't it? How is this defiling skin disease a perfect illustration of sin? Well, firstly, the disease is described as defiling. What does it mean to be defiled? It means that your appearance is damaged. 
And I'm sure you've noticed that someone who's living deep in sin, even their appearance is defiled, isn't it? It even affects their appearance. Their sort of eyes are just glazed over, and they just almost look like death, don't they? Um, There's that story, I'm not sure if it's true, I'm sure you've all heard it, about uh, the famous artist Leonardo da Vinci. When he was... making his famous painting, The Last Supper. Apparently it took him seven years to make that painting. And he had hundreds of models in Milan so he could sort of find the perfect person to sort of paint, to paint Jesus. And it took him months to find the perfect model. So he found someone who looked sort of pure and clean and he said, oh, you could be the model for Jesus. So he spent months then, I think it's like six months, drawing this person who he thought would have looked perfectly like Jesus. And then he spent sort of six years then looking for someone who he could use as a model to paint Judas. And you can probably see where the story's going. And he found a man who looked so rough, who looked so sort of dirty and ragged in sin. He said, you're the perfect person. He found like a prisoner in Rome and he had him sort of shipped over to Milan so he could paint him. And he spent sort of six months painting him. And then the man said, you don't know who I am, do you? Leonardo, I'm the model you used to paint Jesus. I'm the same man. This is what sin has done to me. And it does, doesn't it? It affects our whole being. It's a defiling disease, isn't it? Sin. And this skin disease, I suppose secondly, this skin disease makes you unclean. And like as we thought about with the children, sin makes us feel dirty, doesn't it, on the inside. It's a horrible feeling, isn't it, to feel dirty on the inside. And then thirdly, this defiling skin disease, like leprosy, was contagious. And do you find that sin is contagious? I think most of the sins that I've committed... I've seen other people do them. I've seen it done on television. I've read about it. Isn't it? A lot of the things that the children say. Is it who taught you that? I, I heard a teacher say it. <laughs> like saying a, a blasphemous word or something. Is it who said that? Who says that? We copy people, don't we? Sin is contagious. When we see sin... It's sort of planted deep inside of us. And then it just comes out one day. And you think, where did that come? I saw someone else do it. I read about it. I saw it on television. Sin is contagious, just like this defiling skin disease. And then fourthly, this defiling skin disease kept people from God's presence. They had to be outside of the camp. And our sin separates us from God, doesn't it? Our sin has separated us from God. We're outside of the camp if we're living in our sin. Far away from God. Far away from his goodness and his presence. And then fifthly, if you did have this defiling skin disease, you couldn't just wash it off, could you? You couldn't ask the priest to wash it off. 
And in the same way, sin can't be cured by anyone else. A minister can't do it, our friends can't do it, our family can't do it. How could this disease be cured? How could this man with this defiling skin disease be made clean? Well, in the same way that sinful human beings can be made clean from the inside out. What did this man have to do? What do we read in verse 40? A man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, if you were willing, you can make me clean. That is the perfect example of how to become a Christian, isn't it? What did the man do? He approached Jesus with humility and faith. The only way we can be made clean from our sin is by coming to Jesus with humility and faith. It may involve getting down on our knees and begging him. I'm not saying you have to get down on your knees to become a Christian. It's something that happened to me in the summer of 1994. I just couldn't help it. I just had to get down on my knees and beg Jesus to forgive me for my sins. We come to him with humility and faith. And this man with the defiling skin disease, he knew that he was unclean, didn't he? And we had to confess to Jesus, I am unclean. It's so hard for some people to come to that stage to realise or to admit that they are a sinner. He knew that he was unclean and he confessed his uncleanness to Jesus. But he also had the faith to know that Jesus could make him clean. So what's involved in following Jesus? We have to come to him in humility and faith. Every day we come to Jesus with humility and faith, realising Jesus I'm just a sinner. I'm not worthy. I'm coming to you in faith. I'm coming to you in faith. On our knees, we have to confess our uncleanness, believing that he can make us clean. And then how does Jesus respond when we come to him in humility and faith? How does Jesus respond to us when we come on our knees before Jesus and Jesus, I am unclean, I've sinned again. I'm confessing my sins to you. I want to repent of those sins. How does Jesus respond? Well, what do we read in verses 41 and 42? Uh, Jesus was indignant. I haven't really got time to go into that now. But basically, the NIV 2011 edition is the only Bible translation that's got this word indignant in it. And I've read up about it a bit, so if you want to speak to me about it a bit more detail later, you can. But every other Bible translation has got the words Jesus filled with compassion, which makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? But I'll, I'll give a little something out there. Sort of, apparently, the original is that Jesus was moved in his bowels. That's what the original says. Because the bowels is the seat for our heart and soul, so to speak. So Jesus was sort of moved. And maybe Jesus was like a little bit angry with the effects of sin. He wasn't angry with a leper. Because he does the same when Lazarus dies, doesn't he? When Jesus sees death and mourning, he's deeply troubled. It's not that Jesus was annoyed with Mary and Martha. 
No, he was just deeply moved, wasn't he? So I think probably the better translation, Jesus was filled with compassion. He was moved. So Jesus, filled with compassion, reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. So how does Jesus respond when people come to him in faith and humility? He has compassion on them. He has pity on them. He's moved, isn't he? And he acts immediately. Jesus didn't tell the man with the defiling skin disease, I'll come back tomorrow, let me have a think about it. No, immediately. And that's a word that appears so much in Mark's gospel. Immediately, immediately. And it's amazing that Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the man. Maybe he hadn't been touched in years. No one had shaken his hand or hugged him in years. Yet Jesus touches him. But Jesus doesn't catch the disease. Not the other way around. The man catches Jesus' cleanness, doesn't he? Jesus' purity, Jesus' holiness and cleanness is more infectious than our sin, isn't it? That must have been so moving, so powerful. Jesus touching this man with a defiling skin disease. And do you remember in the 80s, was it mid-late 80s, people were very moved when Diana shook the hand of someone suffering with AIDS. Do you remember that? It's quite a famous picture, isn't it? And obviously you couldn't catch AIDS, could you, by shaking someone's hand. But people had this stigma, didn't they, about AIDS and HIV. Oh, it can be passed even if you shake someone's hand. This transmitted by blood, isn't it? But this defiling skin disease would have been transmitted, wouldn't it? By shaking someone's hand. So Jesus actually touches this man. So powerful. So he has compassion and he responds immediately. Which takes us on to the question, why did Jesus come? He came to make us clean. And I don't know about you, but isn't that such a relief? He came to make us clean. To get rid of the filth and the guilt and the shame of our sin. And then, as we come to the end, what about verses 43 to 44? Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell anyone this. See that you don't tell this to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. So what's that about? Well, Jesus has basically told this man with a defiling skin disease who's just been made clean, go and do the thing that points to what makes you clean, really clean, from the inside out. Go and offer the sacrifice. So the sacrifice was pointing forwards to Jesus, wasn't it? Jesus, who can really make us clean from the inside out. Now, we don't have animal sacrifices today, but we do have symbols that point back to what makes us clean. We have symbols that point back to Jesus, to what Jesus did to make us clean. Like baptism. What is baptism a picture of? It's a picture of death, burial, and resurrection, isn't it? And what's the other symbol we have? Well, the bread and the grape juice. That's pointing back to Jesus' body torn for us and his blood poured out for us. 
So they're the symbols that should mean everything to us when we are made clean. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. So Jesus has basically told this man who's just been made clean, go to church. That's Jesus' first advice. You've been made clean, now go and worship God. Go to church. And you must have been, well, you should have been so excited, isn't it? I've spent years outside of the camp. I couldn't go anywhere near the temple. Now I can go and worship God to offer that sacrifice that points forward to the suffering Messiah. And that is the most important thing we can tell someone after they become a Christian. Join a church family now. Join a church family. Go and worship God with his people. Um, it's what um, I remember. I've got lots of uh, videos and recordings of Billy Graham preaching. And it seems to be the last thing he always says at his crusades. And be sure to go to church on Sunday. So after maybe hundreds or thousands of people have come forward to make professions of faith. And then he'd speak into the camera and be sure to go to church. Isn't it? That's what should come next. Uh, Which kind of answers the question, what's involved in following Jesus? What's involved in following Jesus? It's joining the church as soon as he makes us clean. As soon as we've been made clean by Jesus, we're to join God's people. But then, sort of, verses 43 to 44 can be quite puzzling, can't they? Especially where it says... Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. Why did Jesus say that? Maybe we don't understand it, isn't it? Surely, as soon as you become a Christian, as soon as you've been made clean, you should tell other people about what's happened to you. But in this particular situation, Jesus knows best. And I think that's the lesson for us. Whatever Jesus says to us, Maybe we don't understand it, but he knows best, doesn't he? Because look what happened then in verse 45. This is why Jesus told him, look, don't go and spread this all over the place yet. Just make sure you go to church to begin with. Go and worship God with his people to begin with. Because what do we read then in verse 45? Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result... Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So in a way, he sort of spoiled a little bit of Jesus' mission there, isn't it? It's so sad that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly just because this person didn't do as he was told. It's just a small instruction Because this person didn't do as he was told, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. So whenever Jesus would go into a town to try and preach, they say, oh, I heard about you cleansing the leper, and maybe lots of people would be bringing lepers to him, and Jesus would try and preach, maybe, and people would be all crowded over him, just wanting sort of social security from him. I said, no, I've come to preach. I've come to preach. He said, look what you've done now. You've ruined this mission, haven't you? Jesus came to preach and to make us clean. Let's remind ourselves of verses 40 to 42 to close with. 
such a glorious and triumphant couple of verses to end with, isn't it? A man with leprosy or a man with a defiling skin disease or an unclean man came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was filled with compassion. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed.